Welcome to the Professional Practice Podcasts with me, Austin Williams, Senior Lecturer at Kingston School of Art in London. These podcasts are conversations with experts in the field of architecture and construction and other allied expertise. And today we're pleased to be in the offices of Hall Lee, award-winning engineering consultancy and technical specialists, to talk to Carl Valash, Technical Director at Hall Lee's Fire Engineering Team. And here we are in the offices in King's Cross in London. Carl has written widely on the subject of fire engineering and simulation techniques and is always ready to come up with creative solutions to resolve serious issues. So welcome, Carl. Thank you very much indeed for your time. So let's have, as we normally do on these podcasts, just a little bit of background about yourself. Apparently, correct me if I'm wrong, you studied structural engineering at the Bauhaus University in Germany. So tell us about that and what were your ambitions originally? Yeah, that's right. Um, So after my school, I uh, realized that I enjoy math and that I have an interest, general interest in buildings. So I did a placement with an architect, but pretty soon realized that I'm not that artistic (laughs) and uh, I should focus on my numbers again. So I decided to study structural engineering because I thought that the structural engineering aspect will give me good basis and understanding of buildings. And from that, I either can work as a structural engineer or do something else but related to the building industry. And I was quite fortunate to uh, study at the Bauhaus in uh, Weimar and uh, really enjoyed my time there. So here we are on the 100th anniversary of the Bauhaus and you've kind of returned in some way to teach on the master's course of building physics. You can tell us about that but also what is it about the Bauhaus in some ways that still captures the imagination? Yeah, Bauhaus has of course a very uh, long and interesting history. I always enjoyed collaboration with architects, with designers. I remember one project uh, where mainly a friend of mine was involved. He was a structural engineer but he wanted to design a pavilion out of paper. And uh, he was working in a group together with an architect and together with designers to come up with a way how this material paper can be used to design a beautiful pavilion. And I was fascinated how they were sitting down all together, coming from their respective disciplines, but studying together the material paper. And there's so much to learn about. Uh, how in Japan they have folding techniques to make paper really strong and uh, so they can be used as a structural element. So there you were planning on being an architect, then you move into structural engineering and presumably by building a building out of paper you think, hang on, fire engineering is for me. Yes, I of course (laughs) realised that this paper pavilion can burn really well. No, but I found my way into fire engineering more by coincidence, I must say. I, did, I worked as a part-time student job in a structural uh, engineering practice, and this practice also had a department of fire engineers. And I was working on a historical steel structure where fire was, of course, a structural case. Uh, because if you, as a structural engineer, you think about snow load, you, you open a book and it tells you where your building is located, how much snow you can expect and you put this snow virtually on your roof and see if the building can carry this snow load or not. But with fire it was different because they looked into the building and they tried to understand the fire load and how fire develops and which corner of the structure might be affected because there are some places where the structure might be okay with a bit more temperature and there are other corners where the structure was quite uh, vulnerable. So. I was fascinated how these fire engineers approached was and after that I decided to move into fire engineering. How? 
how. Yeah, how I actually moved into fire engineering. It is linked to a very specific project. I was working in Germany on a project called Palmengarten in Frankfurt, which is similar to Kew Gardens. So a very historical steel structure. The lead architect was a British architect, David Chipperfield. And David wanted to give this building a reuse. And the current regulation said, a building of this height, you need to do this and this and this. And that was the first moment where I thought, that's not fair. Why do people not go back and look at the building? What was it before? I mean, it has proven that it's fine for over 100 years. How can you judge an existing building with current regulations? And the current regulations in this case ask for certain things that were not feasible to provide. And one of them was, for example, to protect the historical steel structure, to clad it in. And it was a very important architectural feature that they wanted to take away. So I was working closely with these fire engineers and they created a 3D model of the building. They looked into great detail into the fire load and they set what they call 3D, 4D models and they looked at smoke spread and temperature spread and together we analyzed what is the maximum temperature on this steel structure. We were able to prove that with this new use the existing steel structure is still capable to keep up the roof and the building and therefore the steel structure didn't need to be enclosed and so the architect was very very happy. Okay well in the UK as I understand it there's only four universities that actually offer a fire engineering degree and a, and a master's. Central Lancashire, Edinburgh, Wolverhampton and Glasgow Caledonian. So it's not really available to people or even if it was it doesn't seem to be a subject of first choice. I mean you're a case study of it being a third choice or an evolution of your choices. What is it about fire engineering that actually gets you out of bed in the morning? Yeah, I think fire engineering itself is still a niche sector in the entire building process. And often people, when they think about buildings, they, more, they think more about an architect or structural engineer, maybe a building services engineer, not so much about fire. In many countries, fire engineering or fire safety is actually part of the architect's work or the engineer's work. In some countries, you do not have the role of a dedicated fire engineer. But fire engineering as well, if you look at all the disciplines that are required to deliver a successful building, fire engineering might be small, but it touches many, many different sectors. So as a fire engineer, on a day-to-day -day basis, you work with architects, with project managers, with cost consultant, with mechanical engineers, electrical engineers, structural engineers, and so on and so on. So what we found is that a lot of people may study actually something else and then find their way, like myself, into fire engineering. So now that you've told us how complicated it all is, tell us how simple it is. What, what actually is fire engineering, if you can sum it up in a neat soundbite? Often people get confused between the words fire safety and fire engineering. Fire engineering for us is really going down to the principles of how a fire starts, how a fire develops and how people react to it and engineering principles that we can apply in building processes, how we can uh, make a building fire safe. Fire safety is often just the pure following of regulations, which we as fire engineers do not necessarily like, because every country has got its own fire regulations. And interestingly, Austin, these fire regulations are developed 
through a process of many, many years. And if you look at different fire regulations in different countries, you find a huge amount of differences. But what we want to do is we want to ignore these historical uh, developments. We want to go down to the true physics and chemistries behind the fire and basic engineering principles which are the same throughout the entire world. So if somebody was to say to you that fire engineering is getting around the system, here I am, Mr. Architect, and my day job is I look at the approved documents, I follow it to the letter, and I get it approved. There you are, swanning around with your experts, getting around the regs. You don't have to do what I have to do. Yeah, Austin, that's a, that's a very good point, because often people say, ah, you are the fire engineer, you are here to cut corners, to avoid following the, the strict regulations. What I always say is that we are not cutting corners. We may develop, we work with an architect and we may develop a strategy where we say we start following the standard guidance and where we cannot follow the standard guidance, we provide a justification why it is okay not to follow the standard guidance or we outline measurements that need to be put in place as a justification for non-code compliant issues. And by doing this, we are actually drilling down a lot more deeper into understanding the use of the building, um, the associated risks in the building, um, the flexibility that comes with this fire strategy, or the limitations, and therefore we can advise in greater detail what is actually the fire safety and the associated risks in this particular building. Okay, it's worth saying for the listeners, that obviously the approved documents are guidance and the building regulations are legislation. Therefore, you don't get around the regulations, do you? You're basically not necessarily complying with the approved documents, but you're showing a compliant way of doing it in another way. That's, that's, that's correct, yeah. And uh, here in the UK, what every designer has to follow is the functional requirements of the building regulations. But as the word itself says functional, they only describe to you a function. And one way to achieve these functional requirements is by following what we call the standard or the basic regulations. One of them is approved document B, B for fire. But there are other ways you can follow or other ways you can use. One of them is fire engineering. And if you follow this route, you can also achieve compliance with the functional requirements. And there is something, a lot of people think that a proof document B is something like the fire safety bible. But at, uh, I think page 5 or page 6 in a proof document B, it actually has a section about fire engineering. And it talks about that there is something like fire engineering and the designers need to be careful that some complex buildings should only be designed by using fire engineering and should not be designed by a proof document B. Point is, is that... Uh, the question about why fire engineering has become mainstream, acceptable, desirable. Uh, whereas in my day, as an old person, I remember the little old man in the back room of the architect's office who was the go-to guy for telling you answers to fire problems. Uh, the little boring old man who knew everything. Whereas now it just seems to be a little bit more front office. It seems to be something which is a profession. It's a separate consultancy and it's run by 
you know, people in swanky offices. So uh, what's changed? What's, what's brought fire engineering to the fore? Yeah, I think it's uh, a whole trend in the building industry and mainly driven by innovative architecture. So architects do not want standard buildings. Architects do not want to build what has been built before. They want to find new ways to make buildings really exciting and, you know, constantly put challenges in front of us of things that are not covered in the standard regulations. Think about mixed use. Maybe 10, 20 years ago, if you would have built an office, an office was just an office. But these days, an office needs to have a gym, maybe used by the public and by uh, the office workers. They want a coffee area, they want a restaurant. So the whole mixed use is becoming more the norm. But all these things are not picked up properly in the standard regulations. And you still have to design fire safety for these uh, innovative modern buildings. And therefore, you have to use fire engineering principles to show uh, the architects, the client, but also, of course, the authorities, that you have considered in great detail the risk associated with this modern building and that you have delivered a fire safety strategy. And is this primarily done by modelling, computational modelling, or fluid dynamics, or whatever it might be, or is it done through experiential analysis and testing and real-life situations, or is it a mixture of both? Yeah, it's a, I would say a mixture of both. Often people think fire engineering, the use of fire engineering, is very time-consuming and expensive because you have to use modelling. But I would actually say the modelling is, is not the key element. The key element is really a thinking process. And the thinking process starts with basic communication, speaking to an architect, understanding what are their drivers, speaking to a client, understanding what they want out of this building, and then starting there, looking at the regulations, where do I comply, where do I not comply, and by then you use fire engineering, and the fire engineering can be just a qualitative argument. It doesn't need to be necessarily calculation. So you're saying it's common sense in some ways? I like that. Yes, Austin. It's common sense. That's the first step. And sometimes when you need to justify your common sense or your engineering judgment, sometimes you have to deliver uh, numbers with this. So you have to do some calculations. You have to do it in a quantitative way. And if simple hand calculations are not enough, and sometimes you have to use what we call the modeling machine and, for example, build a 3D geometry of the entire building and use it for evacuation modeling or uh, set fire in this model and see how smoke spreads to fully understand how the smoke and uh, how fire locations would affect people evacuating the building and um, how it would affect the fire brigade when they arrive and undertake their firefighting process. Okay, so before we move on to this next part of the conversation, tell us about this famous example from history. Austin, what I mentioned roughly at the beginning is how fire regulations have been developed. So fire regulations are really based on basic human experience. And one example is in 1910, there was a fire at the Empire Theatre in Edinburgh, Scotland. So the band uh, was just starting to play the national anthem and the fire started and people started to evacuate. 
and luckily nobody of the audience died. Um, they left the building and people realized the band continued to play. And they found out it took the band two and a half minutes. So the two and a half minutes now found, found its way into the regulations, not just in the UK regulations, throughout the world. And buildings, the basic principle of buildings is that um, two and a half minutes is okay for people to evacuate. Fantastic. And there's lots of examples like that throughout history. Can or does fire engineering find its way into low-rise, bog-standard residential schemes, or is it not your thing? Yeah, that's an interesting question, because often people think fire engineering is only used for, you know, very outstanding buildings like the Shard, or buildings that are, in its nature, very expensive. But that's actually not true. I work with a lot of architects and uh, designers on all kind of buildings. It could be a simple extension of a dwelling house or affordable uh, buildings. As soon as an architect has got a problem following the standard guidance, yeah, and this could be just not being able to put a door in a certain location, they could use fire engineering to justify this and help them to get their design approved. So do you want to give us an example? Yeah, I think uh, over the years I was be oh, I've been quite fortunate to work on a huge variety of different sectors. And one of our recent projects, which is actually currently on site and has partially opened already, is a high-rise tower where we have the lower 10 floors being a hotel uh, served by two stairs. And then one of these stairs goes up another 100 meters or 90 meters and serves a residential single stair building. And um, at the beginning, I, I thought, wow, how can we solve this? Because the standard guidance does not allow you to have different uses in or sharing a means of escape route. So for this building, there were two cases to be considered. Case one is if there's a fire in the hotel. We have people in this hotel which are or could be sleeping and who are most likely unfamiliar. We want to get them all out at the same time. And it's a managed process because the hotel itself has got a high level of management. But we do not want to evacuate the residents. The residents are fully separated from this hotel through compartment floors, compartment walls, ventilated lobbies, etc. And they can stay in their place. It's considered that the flats are separated and they won't be affected by the fire. So they will not get notified. Case two would be if there's a fire in one flat in the residential part. In this case, only occupants from this flat will evacuate, use the stair and leave the building and not pass through the hotel areas. And the residents in the hotel won't be affected at all. Yes, the hotel management will be informed, but again, we've got enough separation between the residential area and the hotel, so re hotel residents can stay in place. But in this example, is it the case that you have a single stair for the residences and is that then shared with the hotel on the, on the lower floors? Yes, that's right. The single stair is shared on the lower floors, but on a day-to-day -day basis the hotel will not use this stair. So it's a purely a means of escape right. stair for them. Right. Is there a particular reason or some kind of evidence that's required about why some proposals succeed and others are rejected? Especially on the basis of local authorities not necessarily having the know-how to be able to interpret the data, but also they are a bit risk averse to just taking the common sense argument. So is there a, a little bit of a gap 
in knowledge on fire engineering? Yeah, definitely. Fire engineering is still a quite young discipline. What we find is that working with the authorities, you can face a lot of different levels of experiences. And for me, fire engineering always starts with communication, explaining someone what we want to do, why we want to do it, what's the driver behind this, and then explain our you know, high-level principles, our strategy, our thinking process, and see if they have seen something like this before. And if they haven't, what we would normally recommend is to work with a third-party reviewer make them comfortable to say we are so confident with our approach that we have no problem if it gets checked by somebody else and we are happy to put them in touch with other fire engineers or other people who have maybe this experience and luckily here in the UK I would say in general authorities are quite open for this approach so if they have, don't have the experience in-house they can rely on getting this experience from another source to help them in the entire approval process. So you want to just tell us, as part of this design exercise, working with innovative architects and, and what have you, is there a typical route, but how do you get invited to a project? Who commissions you to join the team? Where do you sit in the team? At what time do you join a design team? Yeah, I mean, ideally, my preference would always be to be part of the competition team, because there you can really understand what people want to achieve and you can advise them at a very very early stage about the risks and the basic requirements they have to put in place to 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 meet the level of fire safety but often we don't get invited or taking part in the feasibility stage we often are invited to join the, the planning team and be part of the planning team which is i would say still still early but we get recommended by yeah, ver various people. It could be the, the clients themselves, developers, it could be uh, project managers, it could be architects. For me, the key thing is always, when you work on a project, to do the best job you can do, and that helps you to get the next jobs. Okay, and there's just, as you were talking, there's one, again, anecdote, I don't know what it is, or a rule of thumb, uh, or a piece of basic evidential science that you, you've told me before in previous conversations about how to stop a fire. Often I explain people that to have a fire you need three basic things. One is oxygen. The second thing is a fire load. You need something that can burn and keep a fire going. And the third thing is the ignition source. So you, we often talk about this fire triangle and if you remove one of these three things, you cannot have a fire. Um, we worked uh, last week on a server room and a client wanted to protect the server room and we introduced what was called an oxyreduct system. So if a fire starts in the server room, you have a gas replacing the oxygen or reducing the oxygen level in this room so that the fire can't continue to burn. So that was one example. Or we had a, a, a green wall on an external terrace. Um, and the question was, can this green wall burn? Is it a fire load or not? Yes or not? And uh, we discussed with the authorities, they were not sure. They felt this could be a potential fire load. If this green wall is not uh, watered, it could be dry. But then we said, yes, it's external. We definitely have oxygen. But if we ensure through management 
that we don't have an ignition source there. If this terrace is not used and the external wall is outside, but nothing around can, can ignite it. So these are maybe examples where they went back with basic fire engineering principles, looked at the fire triangle and could make the case for the desired design. So very often some of your solutions are management solutions. So you have to say to the building owner, you can't have any parties with naked flames, candlelights, dinners on your roof next to this wall. Uh, yeah, this could be uh, an example. Often fire engineers don't like to rely on the management. We would like to illuminate the management side so that our fire safety strategy still works without any human factor. Um, right, in terms of a couple of open-ended questions at the end, I was going to ask you what's hot in fire regulations, but I won't say that. What should architects in particular be alert to that may be coming around the corner? Like the new ADP is happening, but anything else? Yeah, uh, proof document B is currently under review and will be uh, partially updated. I think the updated version will come out in spring 2019, but we expect in the following years more significant changes to ADB. So following the Grenfell incident and the publishing of the Hackett report, a lot of research is currently taking place to see if there is reasons for more fundamental changes in the fire regulations here in the UK. So I would advise any architect to, to watch this. There are many seminars out there and um, I'm sure the whole industry is talking about this. Well, I presume people will be surprised to find out that the ADB coming out in spring 2019 may not deal with some of the implications of the Grenfell Tower, partly because there's still an inquiry going on, so it's a little, maybe it's a little bit too in advance. That is correct, yeah. I mean, first of all, the Grenfell inquiry is still going on and we haven't understood or presented yet fully with the reasons of this. We also need to understand that Grenfell is very unusual event in itself and research has to be under, undertaken to show, for example, cost-benefit analysis or show grounds and uh, for, for, for new regulations to be implemented. And in terms of architects who are famously lacking in common sense sometimes and very keen to just comply with the uh, approved documents uh, and not go beyond, how would you help them relax into maybe experimenting? I mean, there's all these kind of high-end architects who may be playing around with innovation. But, you know, Joe Block architects... Uh, how would you give them a bit of confidence? Yeah, I think architects still need to understand the fundamental things in the proof document B. They cannot ignore it. They need to know a proof document B. But when they design, I often say to them, follow, follow your architectural vision. And if you know you deviate from the proof document B, just speak to a fire engineer and get assistance. But just knowing that you deviate should not stop you from great architecture. Still proceed and design and come up with innovative solutions. If you only think about a approved document B, you will not come up with a new trend in architecture. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Uh, so, okay, well, following on from that a conclusion question, I suppose, is do you think that there are some things that architects always get wrong, still get wrong, continue to get wrong? and misunderstand about fire protection, that maybe you can give them a few clues. Yeah, maybe I can give you an example, because a few weeks ago I spoke to an architect 
in a residential building, when you have to uh, build taller than 30 meters, you need to sprinkler this building. And often fire engineers says, say with a simple sentence, this building needs sprinklers. What we mean is that these sprinklers are only required in the flats itself, because that's where we expect the fire. This is where you have a fire load. Sometimes architects think they need sprinklers in the corridors as well, but that's wrong. And it goes back to the triangle, the fire triangle that we discussed. We do not expect a fire load in this corridor, and therefore we don't need sprinklers there. Top clues from the experts. That's all we have time for, Carl. Thank you very much indeed. That was Carl Valash, Technical Director at Hawley in their fire engineering team. Check him out and what they do at hawley.com. That's H-O-A-R-E-L-E-A, all one word. If you want to follow our podcasts, the Professional Practice Podcasts, and listen to our archive, tune into our website on SoundCloud or iTunes. My name is Austin Williams. Till the next time, thanks for listening. Thank you.